Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and it's my pleasure to host the Emerge Australia podcast series, in which we speak to a range of professionals and importantly, those impacted by and associated with MECFS and long COVID. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present, emerging and those in attendance. As we reflect on the magnificent lyrics of John Lennon's Imagine, wouldn't it be wonderful to imagine a world where there is no greed or hunger, where we have a brotherhood of man? Maybe a world without discrimination or stigma, a world where there is a cure for MECFS, where the voices of those suffering invisibly are listened to, seen and heard. Imagine all the people. So today it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Mark Donohoe to our Emerge Australia podcast series. Mark has worked in the field of MECFS for over 35 years and is considered one of Australia's most experienced and best-known medical practitioners in the fields of nutritional and environmental medicine. Mark continues to bring orthodox and complementary medicine together in his medical practice in Mosman, New South Wales. He sees patients from around Australia and overseas with complex illnesses including MECFS, fibromyalgia, chemical toxicity and sensitivities, and chronic inflammation. Mark is the founding doctor and director at his integrative practice in Mossman and is currently president of this Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, known as ACNEM. Dr. Donohoe is a member of the Emerge Australia Medical and Scientific Advisory Committee. Mark, thank you so much for joining us and I really look forward to our discussion. It's great to be with you, Anne. And can I say one thing? I think we might do better with a sisterhood of women than a brotherhood of man. Maybe we need to update the lyrics just a little to get a more feminine perspective on ecology and environment. There are a lot of people who'd agree with you. (laughs) So to get us started, you're a highly respected integrative GP with a significant interest in nutritional and environmental medicine. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and what led you into nutritional and environmental medicine? How did it all start? It started with me being a GP in Gosford, opening a general practice in Gosford about uh, 40 years ago, almost exactly. And the people that I was seeing there came from a farming community. And I was seeing people turn up with really complicated illness that led to fatigue, inexplicable illness. They'd seen specialists. This is my first years in general practice. And what we eventually tracked it down to was these people were using pesticides. The pesticides were being used unsafely. 
it was getting into their water and eventually, as we found out, into their bloodstream. And it was having a really big negative effect on their health. So my interest was sparked as, why aren't pesticides safe? They should only kill insects and uh, pests. That's why they're called pesticides. And that was the start of a discovery with the Society of Environmental Medicine about the impact that pollutants had, persistent organic pollutants and other pollutants on the health of people. So my practice was focused on environmental health, of cleaning the environment, making sure people were in occupations that were safe. And that inevitably led to the question of, but why would they get fatigue? You know, we were all taught about cancer with, with these chemicals. Why were people suffering fatigue that we couldn't explain? And then that led to the journey of, okay, so maybe it's more complex illnesses, how the body adapts to stress, how it manages those pesticides without us dying. And that inevitably led me to Ian Brighthope's group, which was ACNEM, the College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. And I've basically been stuck there for 35 years since I got my fellowship with ACNEM all that time ago. So it was an introduction to the medicine that I'd never learned at university and that I'd never seen in hospitals. These patients, complex patients, didn't fit the hospitals. Hospitals rejected them as psychiatric generally and just sent them home, never saw them again. And here we were in general practice seeing these people. And that led to the learning of nutrition, environment, the value of sleep. In fact, what we really discovered was there's a missing healthcare system. We've got a great disease care system called Medicare. If you've got a disease that's definable, single, simple organ, we do great. When it comes to complicated things, we love the 10 minute consultation more than we love listening to people and unraveling the reasons why they're unwell. And a lot of us as doctors, about six or 800 of us, have found our home in Acnem as the way that we can practice a medicine that listens to people, reflects back, and then tries to pull pieces together to look after their health. It's way more satisfying than the five minute, 10 minute script pad medicine that we were all kind of taught to do. Wow. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of the listeners today would be saying, oh, can I go and see Mark Donahoe because that's just the kind of doctor that we need because, uh, as you know, patients are telling us time and time again that uh, traditional medicine and, in fact, the healthcare system is failing patients with MECS yeah. and now long COVID. I, I totally agree, but it's been failing them for a long time. And you've got to ask when there's a business model to medicine, as doctors, many times we've revisited this idea of should we be, you know, working to listen to people and spending time? Medicare is a great system for quick fixes, but spending time is not what it's good at. A doctor who spends an hour or more with a person sacrifices about 70% of their income compared to the high turnover doctor. Many people, oh, sorry, many doctors have been trained by ACNEM, passionate about ACNEM, but they go back to their practice and cannot find a way to make it work within the medical system and still stay alive. So if you could imagine that at the stage that we're talking about in the uh, mid 80s, a doctor had the choice of being paid about $40 an hour or even $40 for two hours to listen to a person and paying their staff more than they could ever earn. So that that kind of bias towards rapid short-term medicine 
is perpetuated by a system that pays for short consultations, short interventions, and doing it over and over. And I think that's where we've let, the, let ourselves down, is that patient needs are much higher than the Medicare needs, but doctors can't find a way of mixing social justice of Medicare pays your bills and when you are poor, you cannot afford an integrative doctor. You can't, just can't do it. And I, I do remember, you know, in our conference, you pointed this out, that it's all very well to have great ideas, but if no one can afford them apart from the rich, that creates an inequity that's just intolerable. And so we're living within that, the trying to solve that problem of how do you have time listening to people? One way is to say to the government, well, we need health care that takes time. Pay people the same, whatever time they're spending with people, pay for quality, not just turnover, not just how quickly you can do it. Do you think that just on that note, that the changes to the MBS items that are foreshadowed, I think, to come in towards the end of the year are going to make a difference? They could make a little difference. So <clears throat> we went through this with you know, mould-related illness. We've been through it with chronic fatigue syndrome before. The idea that you know you sacrifice most of your income to just sacrifice half of it with the new system. A doctor who's, who's basically saying, well, I can make $300 $400 an hour by just doing my standard short consultations. I can now make $170 an hour instead of $120 an hour by spending that same hour talking to a person. There's still a big bias in a different direction. I think there's more room for a new health professional of a health professional who is more like a healthcare practitioner than a doctor who can spend the time, take the history, document it, and then find a way of Medicare funding, not at doctor's rates, but at that new professional rate. So I do think there's room, not for highly paid doctors to keep on just doing longer hours, but a new brand of health professional. And at ACNEM, we're exploring that, health coaches, people who can do a job listening, who can document, and then say to the doctor, here's your job. Whereas at the moment, Medicare says doctor's job is everything and you refer to other practitioners occasionally. I think we've got that in healthcare. That's the wrong way around. Do you think that the role of the nurse practitioner would come close to being able to do, do fulfil that role? I, I, I do believe that the nurse practitioners can do it, but we still have that disease-centred training. And here's, you know, here's one of these complicated illnesses with ME-CFS. Why is it not called ME-CFD? Why is it not chronic fatigue disease? Doctors haven't defined it as a disease. So the training for nurses, the training for doctors is in disease recognition, disease treatment, disease planning. Nurses are way closer to being healthcare practitioners than doctors are. Say that again. Doctors are fully trained to be doctors. They're disease care practitioners. But when it comes to healthcare, who spends time with the patients in hospital when they're doing nursing training? Not doctors. They're in and out very quickly. So I think nurse practitioners are part of that solution. Other practitioners come in as well. We have physiotherapists, we have dietitians, nutritionists. We have a whole class of people who are so well trained in medical and healthcare at the moment that we're just not looking sideways for the answer. 
doctors will always, for the, at least for now, cost us money. In a funny sense, GPs have been put in a training scheme of earning less and less every year. So maybe there is hope for GPs yet. But when it comes to medical care, I think that we're looking for a new brand of healthcare practitioners, people who understand how to preserve health, how to take a history, and how to manage more complex, nuanced issues that are not a proven disease, don't have just one treatment, one drug, one approach, which we're all honing in on, but which open up the story and work with each individual person for their own journey to recovery or acceptance or minimizing the suffering of each person rather than saying, oh, you have a psychiatric illness or there's nothing wrong with you. The classic line of a doctor after a specialist has done their work for the heart workup or the um, endocrinology is, there's nothing wrong with you. There's clearly something wrong. What we should be saying is, I don't understand what's wrong with you and I've got a different health professional who will do the work that I'm not trained to do. That's um, goes against the grain. Yeah, I can, I can see that it does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in your comment about the uh, S um, after um, MECFS. Why then, when the World Health Organization um, coined the the term um, and acknowledged that it was a disease so many years ago, why then did it shift to syndrome? Um, I think there are powerful forces there. There is this concept there. The term is nosology. Nosology, doctors own the name of diseases. Basically, it's an ownership and a don't tread on my turf issue. So nosology is the nomenclature for the naming of diseases. We have a system of doctors ticking a box when something fits within their concept of disease and withholding that at a time where we say, oh, no, that's just a syndrome. That's just a pattern. It doesn't earn the title of disease. And I don't think doctors or the medical profession is aware how powerfully that can make a person disappear. So a person with MECFS, at least the disability of multiple sclerosis and of cancer, the same type of disability is a syndrome rather than a named disease. We guard disease names jealously and keep on calling something a syndrome or descriptive terms until we've got a drug or something that fits our medical concept of how to fix things. Suddenly things become a disease and we're fine about calling it a disease from that time. The Institute of Medicine tried to do this with SEID, the Systemic Exertion Intolerance Disease. And it was rarely criticised by saying, well, we don't call it a disease yet, so you've gone beyond your remit. You, you're not allowed to call it that. And that's a way of putting people back in their box. Doctors don't feel bad about it because it's not a disease that we're not caring for. It's just a syndrome. And I think that was a, a terrible decision early on. It allowed doctors to walk away saying, I manage disease fabulously. If you had a disease, I would be able to manage it. You just have X. And then the doctor puts it down to their own version. You just need to work harder. You just need to get one this week. If you had a better attitude, you'd be better, said a, a new GP to a person. 15 minutes into a consultation, this GP just said, it's your attitude that's the problem. If you had a better attitude, you'd be well. People have been through that. 
in our clinic where we had it that was taken you know very seriously back in the early 90s we had on average for a woman four psychiatrists that had seen them before anyone took them seriously enough to look at them males only had one psychiatrist and a quarter of the time to diagnosis but there is this whole process in medicine of we think women when 80% turn up that this is like hysteria. This is the bad old days where the uterus roamed around the body and lodged in the brain or somewhere. And we had that kind of mistaken view of medicine. If there's ever misogyny, it's in this field. It happens true with autoimmune disorders. Anything that women have more than men, the medical kind of concept is you should be more like a man than you would complain less. <laughs> no recognition that there are certain things that biology does, like, you know, child rearing and other things that may have a different kind of biology to them. Yeah. So I, I, I still think that there's that there's that medical arrogance that we're taught you are the stars, you name disease, you tell people when they're sick and you get them out of complaining when they're not. And I think that we've carried that over through my entire professional career. I've only been in it 40 years. But there are still doctors who I know, young doctors graduating, who think that they know all of the diseases. It's not in their textbook. It's just a funny little thing on the side, MECFS. What's the best thing of COVID? It's no longer a funny little thing on the side. For now, suddenly doctors who have always disregarded it are now seeing MECFS appearing as long COVID. And there's a sudden acceptance of it. But in the background, there's still that part of our profession pushing to say, no, it's just like MECFS. It's not real. Don't, you know, don't overplay it. It's all in the mind. And it's very disheartening to see the same old people trying to do the same old push in the same old way. Fortunately, I don't think doctors are buying it this time because now hundreds of thousands of people are suddenly terribly disabled and we can't find good answers for it. So I still have hope that the upside of a pandemic is that the profession suddenly realizes this always was a disease state. Dis-ease doesn't mean, you know, that we know the answer to it, but it's certainly the dis-ease part of it is really fulfilled. And I think that that work in research there might just take us forward and bring into the fold all the MECFS sufferers. There's 200,000 of them in our country, maybe yeah. even more. If we're not embracing them and we're trying to separate them from long COVID, then we have made that mistake all over again. Just what a what a fascinating discussion, Mark. Um, I'm just thinking for for people who are listening and maybe um, you've you've explained that as an integrative GP, um, you know, you spend the time to get a detailed history. You the consultations take longer. Yes, they cost more, but I'm wondering what the different, you know, um, approach to um, diagnosis and treatment is between an integrative GP and a standard GP. I, I, there's a practical answer to that. The standard GP under Medicare regulations is supposed to focus on one presentation, one presenting problem, one at a time, one consultation deals with a problem. And it was never terribly well designed to deal with anything complicated. And I think many of us felt, uh, you know, I was in the very early years of Medicare, the first decade of Medicare, we felt that there was a pressure to do things that did not 
get the full story. Most of the people that I know in integrative medicine, in nutritional medicine, environmental medicine, became thoroughly dissatisfied with the idea of squeezing everything into a problem solving. It was more, here's the problem, here's the name, here's the drug, move on. And initially, that's very exciting because people look like they're getting better. You get symptom management. But a doctor who's really caring for health can see the flaw. After, after way less than a decade, what was unsatisfying is the same people were coming back with the same problem time after time, and we were fixing them one at a time without ever knowing why. So my feeling is doctors automatically go back to what is our training meant to be? Why is the person sick? Not what's the name of their illness? And we've got doctors who are utterly committed to that. Now, there's disagreements about ultimately why a person is sick. Even in our own, you know, when I see doctors in my own group, one will say, oh, this is maybe more mast cell, or this is maybe chronic virus. So there are differences, but the discussion is very, very worthwhile having. And I, I think that we have the dissatisfied doctors, we used to call them the feral doctors, the one that got away from wanting to just prescribe the same drug over and over. What I see now with a perspective of 40 years is people I went through university with are utterly bored and dislike doing medicine. It's just, it's never been satisfying. You can put up with it a while because the more rewards are high and they wish they'd done something else. So as you get on a bit, the poor um, occupational reward for the doctor starts to play out and doctors just start hating medicine. All of the people who are inactive are still enthusiastic, whether they're four years into it or 40 years into it. Why? Because the discovery of why is a moment where you share something unique with patients. Their understanding rises, you understand the person, and they've got a path to recovery rather than a path to coming back over and over. And I, I just think inquisitiveness, a younger generation of doctors is picking that up. Now, we've got more young doctors now than we've ever had before that are dissatisfied with superficial medicine. They want to go deeper. And so, yeah, deeper takes time. Deeper takes yeah. time. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're now in the era of post-acute sequelae of COVID, um, and we are told by government that a focus on research of PASC or long COVID um, they are hopeful that it will result in some benefit to MECFS patients. Um, has that pendulum swung too far in, in your view? Should we be absolutely pushing on greater for greater focus on MECFS? I'm torn here because what I'm watching after 35 years in the MECFS area is the people with long COVID are making the same mistakes of we will discover the treatment for, we will discover the reason for this idea that like all the rest of medicine, this isn't complex. There's one thing that goes wrong. And when we discover the answer, long COVID will be solved, but there'll still be those MECFS people over there. And I think even within Emerge, we realise this is a post-infectious syndrome that plays out according to each individual's vulnerability. So some have more maybe anxiety, some have POTS, some have autoimmune problems set off. 
they're all coming from the same original virus. The name of the virus is no different, but the way it plays out is different. And that's anathema almost to medicine. We love one bug for pneumonia, an antibiotic that treats it, be grateful, go home and it's all done. That's not how the world of the general practitioner or the naturopath or any other health provider sees it. We all know that the same stress on two different people plays out two different ways. And I think that what, where the research can be flawed all over again, and you know, literally at your advice, we're starting to reach out to others and say, don't make the mistakes that chronic fatigue syndrome research had through all those years of pursuing the, you know, the, the silver bullet that will one day fix it. It doesn't exist. But yep. what we need to do is go back to the individual and work out ways in which we are going to look at this illness, break it down into a components that we can help with and help reconstruct health of a person, even people who are damaged. We know this from cancer, you know it from kidney disease. Sometimes you can't do much, but you can give them attention, care, and allow them to have a place in society. My concern with MECFS has been, you don't exist. You're almost invisible to the profession. So what I am hoping from long COVID is that we can go that distance and recognise there are things we don't know disabilities we can't explain, but we can still care and we can still give those people a place in society and value them and understand the suffering they're going through. That doesn't require a magic bullet. That requires compassion and humanity. And I think we've lacked that so far. Oh, what what important points you raise here. Um, I'm going to ask you the 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 tricky question, as you know, there's a big chasm between um, those um, academics and clinicians who could be seen as the purists and the conservatives that haven't necessarily got a very serious view of the work that um, the integrative specialists and GPs do or of the research what, what are your thoughts on that my thoughts are, <clears throat> are modified a little bit by your presentation at our long COVID conference that to look us in the eye and say you need to be talking you know it's not your war to have academics versus orthodox versus integrative that's irrelevant that's utterly irrelevant to a suffering person all it does is delay the communications we need to share experience so I mean, literally on, on the basis of what you said, we're reaching out to others who are not antagonistic to views. It's just we haven't talked because we think ourselves in different camps and we've had the conceit to think that our wars are important. Uh, we've got researchers who are great researchers in the MECFS area. We've got new researchers trying to grab the money for the long COVID research. They should definitely be talking together and that should be, you know, the common things say with the biobank, that there are resources there that they need to know and paths that we've already traversed in MECFS that didn't work out. We don't want to do and waste time again. But the idea of bringing orthodox clinicians, the ones with, you know, the, the feet on the ground of seeing patients together with researchers has always thought to be a little bit dirty, you know, that you don't want the purity of research sullied by the needs of doctors. And that failure of communication we now call translational medicine, that really requires 
people with experience in the room, whether we agree with that experience or not. It requires sufferers in the room. And you, you would know from, you know, the nice guidelines for all, often experts, the last thing they want in the room is any dirty little patient that might make a mess of their theories or, you know, may, may sully the science. We've got to get used to talking to each other. The walls have to come down. And if they don't, then we're not serving our profession well and we're not serving anybody who's suffering. So I'm the next step, you know, from me with ACNEM is to reach out to the RACGP, to the colleges, to the researchers, the ones that are orthodox, the ones that have been in MECFS. If we pull those resources, we won't be reinventing the wheel and we will be do using resources well. I have another idea, uh, which again came from viewers, if we can get a doctor who spends time with people rewarded in the same way the one that doesn't, then there's not this bias, there's not this pressure for good doctors to give up on what they wish and love to do and go and do something else just to make a living. That's, um, that's not reasonable for doctors to do. If you've got a practice to pay off, you have to pay it off. You can't go broke and help anybody. So I am, I am keen to see that discussion take place. And until it takes place, the only sufferers really are those people who suffer the illnesses that we're not managing well. And once the conversation starts, I think we'll be productive because the lessons learned in history will be paid attention to. The opportunities that the new researchers with fresh eyes bring to it will also be seen in a different way. And what we're trying to do as a college is encourage that association between good research, our knowledge, and what a practitioner can do safely in the meantime while we look for better answers. Mm, unbelievable. Bring it on, I say. Bring it on, as would I'm sure all of our listeners. So I'm going to just ask you a, a very sort of um, light question with probably a serious answer. If you were Prime Minister for a day, what would you do? Uh, I would establish in a constitutional push that there be a healthcare system devised for Australia and separate a disease care system, which we've done well, called Medicare, and then establish a healthcare system and look for the health professionals to take us to prevention and not having more pandemics in the future. So I would fix the world just with, you know, create health. It will yeah. give you a better answer than give you uh, uh. A, a new disease. Well, I think that's a great aspiration. And I think maybe we should tell our current prime minister and health minister that that's what you do, because uh, I do think it would make a huge difference to patients, not just... I have, talked to, I have talked to three health ministers, all of whom said quite happily, I'm not a health minister, I'm a disease minister, you're talking to the wrong person. The next question for each of them was, well, who's the right person? If you're the health minister, you need a different name. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to be called the Minister for Diseases. So I think, yeah, um, well, you know, ages ago, ages ago, we always talked about the fact that you need to talk about the positive side, which is health, health promotion rather than, you know, disease. So, um, you know, health is it. But um, certainly it appears that in that, plethora of issues that a health minister has to cope with and a government needs to cope with. Um, a framework like you're proposing makes an awful lot of sense and certainly would then bring those sides together that currently 
are actually leaving, you know, 250,000 people plus about 400,000 people with long COVID with no answers. Yeah. But you would think the pressure, the pressure should build. Yes, and, absolutely. You know, that, that idea of what, who suffered long COVID, there were many people with comorbidities. In other words, things that we should have cared for with a healthcare system before. If you were sick, diabetic, and no one had paid attention to weight, all of those lost opportunities over the last 50 years made people vulnerable to COVID and to long COVID as a consequence of it. We can all look back and say, if only we'd valued health, then the next step is, yeah, but we didn't. But now we've got to cope with the consequences. At some point, you've got to revalue health. And if we don't, then we're going to go through this again and again and again at higher and higher cost. And I don't see an end to it without establishing something where we look after health of people and make that a priority rather than just the disease care side. Dr. Mark Donohoe. Thank you for your time, for your wisdom, um, and for your willingness to share your professional and personal views regarding uh, MECFS, long COVID, the health system. I could talk to you for hours about these things, but we only had half an hour. We so appreciate having you as our podcast guest, and uh, Emerge Australia so appreciates the fact that you're on our Medical and Scientific Advisory Committee. Um, so thank you, Mark. Thank you for that. And I want to thank you as well. You bring a new energy to emerge. If this is not driven from you, I think everybody is somewhat terrified of you in a very, very good way that your determination to see justice occur and to see this resolved. I think I respect that greatly. That drive can get us through this crisis, I think. So thank, thank you, you very much. much. Very kind of you. Thank you. So today's podcast is part of a series Emerge Australia is recording with patients, clinicians and people of influence to ensure that the voices of those with MECFS are seen and heard. This is a platform where we can together explore the pressing issues facing 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. So tune in again for our next interview and don't forget for more information and to subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter, visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Thank you again, Dr. Mark Donohoe, and goodbye. Thank you. you may say that I'm a dreamer But I'm not the only one I hope someday you'll join